0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the first chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. I'll be looking at three different passages this morning. The first one is from verse 26 through verse 38 of chapter 1, and then verses 46 through verse 55 in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, verses 15 through 19. Please give your full attention to God's inherent transformative word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I don't ever pray to Mary. The Mary that I meet in the pages of scripture would be horrified and appalled at the idea that fellow sinners saved by grace, like she was, would come to her for anything at this point. Those who pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, are misinterpreting the greeting that the angel Gabriel gave to Mary as it's given in verse 28. You'll notice there that the ESV translation gives a better translation. It says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Gabriel is saying to Mary, Mary, you are blessed. God has shown unmerited favor upon you. You have received grace because the Lord is with you. You see, Gabriel was trying to tell Mary that the Lord is the source of great grace toward her, and she's the recipient of grace, not the dispenser of grace. And if you need any further confirmation, just go down to verse 48 where Mary herself speaks of how she would expect to be remembered by the future generations of the church. Where she says, For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he is mighty. He who is mighty has done great things for me. That is how Mary expected to be remembered. As a sinner saved by grace for whom God had done amazing things. A sinner upon whom God had poured out amazing grace. So having said that, I do want us to take some time this morning to look at Mary, not as a dispenser of grace, but as an example to us of what real faith looks like. That phrase ought to sound familiar to you because we've been talking about that a lot for the last couple of months as we worked our way studying through the book of James. You'll remember that we said that the theme of James is that true faith works. That we know true faith by the fact that it produces good works. We know what genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ looks like by how it transforms a sinner's character, attitudes, words, and way of living. True faith does that. And so what we're going to do during this Advent season is we're going to look at the key people in the gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus Christ. Mary, this morning. Joseph, the shepherds, the wise men. And we're going to look at them in these familiar stories. But we're going to look at it from the perspective of James. And we're going to see how James. What he taught us about what true faith looks like. Is confirmed in these fellow sinners lives. How their lives exhibited. This kind of working faith that James talked about. At this point I'm reminded of what the apostle Paul told us about how we are to measure ourselves. We're not to be consumed with measuring other people. That's what we tend to do. Instead of that, we're to be measuring ourselves. But the criteria that Paul gives us for measuring ourselves is very different from what the world tells us every day about how we're to measure ourselves. The world says you should measure yourself by your height, your weight, your looks, your job, your educational credentials, your degrees your wealth, your social status. But listen to how the Apostle Paul says we are to measure ourselves. Listen carefully to what he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. hear what he's saying there? That you are to measure yourself before God according to the amount of faith that you've been given. That's the only important measurement in your life. Unlike the other criteria that the world tries to put upon us to measure us, this is a humbling assessment. No matter how much faith you discern in your heart and in your life, it's still humbling because it's impossible to take pride in how much faith you have for two reasons. First of all, faith glorifies the object of that faith, not the recipient of that faith. If you were to come to me, you're new to town, and you say, I need a a safe place to put my money. Where, Where would you recommend that I put my money? And if I were to respond to you and say, well, you know, my money's at Northwest Bank, and I have faith in Northwest Bank to keep my money and protect it. Would that be a testimony to me? Of course not. It's a testimony to the bank that I have faith in the bank to keep my money and my resources. And so faith doesn't glorify the one who practices faith. It glorifies the one who's the object of the faith. And so there's no pride in having faith from that regard. But secondly, scripture tells us that faith is a gift. We're not born with faith. We're not born with the ability to exercise faith. God must sovereignly do something to us in order that we can have faith. It's a gift. Ephesians 2, Ephesians two verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this not, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And so there's no pride. No matter how much faith you discern in your life, it's not a matter of pride because faith is a gift and faith gives testimony to God's greatness. And so as we study The evidences of faith that we see in these key players in the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, I'm hoping that we will be challenged and encouraged to assess the level of faith in our life, but more than that, to ask God for more, to seek more, to strive for more faith. So what does Mary teach us about faith? Well, the first thing that scripture wants us to recognize about Mary was how Extraordinarily unexceptional she was, if she's measured by earthly standards. R. Kent Hughes in his commentary says that Mary was a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. Mary was very likely a poor, uneducated peasant girl, maybe as young as 13 years old. And the hometown that she came from was a disreputable village. We know that because later Nathaniel, the budding disciple of Jesus Christ, Nathaniel would say this about Nazareth. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the kind of town that Mary came from. So she was an extraordinarily unexceptional young woman from an extraordinarily unexceptional place. But the Lord chooses her and intentionally favors her. That's Gabriel's message. Mary, you've been favored. She was a sinner with no earthly credentials. And what a favor the Lord placed upon her. The angel Gabriel informs her that she will give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. The unique son of God and son of David that would reign over God's universal kingdom forever. For centuries upon centuries, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, had waited and wondered what woman would be given the great privilege of giving birth to the promised seed of the the woman that was promised to, to Adam and Eve. The seed of the woman who would come to crush the head of the serpent, the evil one. The one who would be sent to redeem God's people, to deliver God's people from all of their enemies, To bring blessing to the nations and to do away once for all with the curse that sin brought upon this world with sin itself and Satan himself. As those generations of Jewish people hoped to see the Messiah come in their day, they surely would have assumed that the woman who would give birth to the Messiah would be a queen. Or a princess in the palace in in Jerusalem. Not a peasant girl from a scrubby dirt water town like Nazareth. But then we see Mary's response to this incredible announcement. Verse 34. She says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? What's interesting to me there is that what Mary is concerned about is not her lack of earthly status because she understands how God works by grace. She's not worried about her lack of status. She's just concerned with physiology, anatomy, biology. How can this be? Because I'm a virgin. I've never been with a man. What bothered her wasn't her earthly status, it was her marital status. She was betrothed. And in Jewish culture to be betrothed was to be as committed as though you were married but yet still apart. To remain virgin. The bride and the groom would remain virgins and they would stay apart for usually up to about a year. And it was in this betrothal period where she could not be with the man. She could not be with Joseph. So how could she possibly bear this child? What's interesting is that It's a response of faith that she gives. She's saying, Lord, I accept your word. I just don't understand how it can come to pass. That's very different from how Zechariah, the priest, responded when Gabriel just shortly before had appeared to him and said, your aged barren wife is also, she's going to have a miraculous birth. And she's going to give birth to the forerunner, the prophet who was promised to come before the Messiah, the one who would be called John the Baptist. And you remember how Zechariah responded? He didn't say, How can this be? Explain the biology to me. He said, How can I know this is true? Which was a statement of doubt, not a statement of faith. And that's why the angel declared that he would not be allowed to speak. He would be disciplined for that until John was born. But Mary says, how is this going to happen? I don't understand. And Gabriel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. God can do anything He chooses to do. Nothing is impossible with God, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the Holy Spirit will create within your womb a fully human baby with a soul and a body that are fully human. It'll be a miracle. Something impossible. And because of that, this child, Jesus, will be fully human and yet fully God. And then Gabriel gives her a sign, as the Lord often does. When you do have faith, and all of our faith is imperfect, all our faith is incomplete, when you express faith, the Lord will often give you reassurance to your faith. The Lord's Supper is a reassurance to our faith. He gives Mary a sign. He says, go visit your relative Elizabeth because she's six months pregnant, believe it or not, with a miraculous birth. Go see Elizabeth, and that will confirm that the word I give to you is true. And it's at this point that we see the very first characteristic of genuine faith, the real confirmation that the faith that Mary had was real, Life transforming. I'll state it this way. That true faith, if it is true, it submits fully to the will of God. That true faith submits fully to the will of God. Look at verse 38. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I am a servant of the Lord. In a very real sense, that's the epitome <laughs> of the response of faith to the Word of God, and the revelation of the will of God for your life. I am the Lord's servant. That word that's translated servant, when they translate the New Testament from the Greek into the English, that's one of the words they often struggle with. Because the word servant doesn't actually quite capture it. The word doulos in Greek Actually, probably more specifically, a way we would understand the status of that person is that it's a slave. Sometimes it's called a bond servant, sometimes the word servant is used, but it's the idea of somebody who is totally at the mercy of somebody else's will. Somebody who is obligated to do everything that their master requires of them. We would call that a slave. The problem is, in our cultural context, in our day and age, that's a very problematic word to use. We don't ever want to use the word slave in any positive sense. Because our connotation for the word slave, for the word slave or slavery has to do with somebody whose will is totally con- coerced. Who through abuse and threat are coerced to do what they don't want to do or have no choice to do. And so when we read the word, we see it only in negative. But really, it's a very real sense. You could translate what Mary says that way. I am the slave of the Lord. I am here to do his will completely. True faith leads to that kind of submission. That kind of yielding of your heart, your mind, your life to the Lord been kind of a jarring experience for me to study the heart and the character and the faith of Mary this past week because every morning I turn on the news and there's another two or three politicians or celebrities that are being exposed for the way in which they and their powerful positions had abused sexually or otherwise people under their authority. And I think about what that means to be under somebody's authority like that, to be abused in that way. And I think what a grotesque rebellion against what God intended. That if you're put in a position of authority, that you would use people to gratify your wicked desires or to make yourself feel powerful. There is... Not much on earth that's more evil than that. But Mary looks to the Lord and she says, I am yours. I am here to do your will. Whatever you require of me, I will do. I am your servant. I am your slave. You see, Mary trusted the heart of God. She knew who God was. She knew how good he was. She knew how pure he was. She knew his will was perfect. She knew that what God willed for her was only for her good or for the good of his people and or for the good of his people. Because God is a faithful God, a loving God, a covenant God who redeems his people. She understood that. So surrendering to a master who is perfect, who is good, is not hard. It's the only right response. Now, don't get me wrong. Mary understood that surrendering her will to the Lord's will would mean a lot of suffering in her life, a very hard road. She would be ridiculed from that point on. Nobody would believe what the angel Gabriel had told her about this miraculous birth she would deal with the earthly shame misunderstood but still real earthly shame the rest of her life and she would as Simeon the prophet Simeon said to her when he saw the new child that she would give birth to she told Mary a sword is going to pierce your soul And Mary stood there at the foot of the cross and watched her son be crucified by his enemies. It was a hard road, but Mary trusted it was a good road. It was a necessary road. That God's will was perfect and he could be trusted. True faith drives us towards absolute, unqualified submission to God's will. And none of us is there yet. Think about how much of your life is spent doing your will without regard to what God's will is. But that's what true faith produces. A dissatisfaction with doing contrary to God's will and increasing hunger for living according to God's will. This is the submission of our Lord Jesus Christ himself who said to his father, not my will be done, but your will be done. The Lord Jesus who taught us to pray daily That the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. I heard a story about the very familiar hymn, Have Thine Own Way. Have you ever really read the lyrics of that as you're singing it? I don't know about you, but I have a hard time choking out the words of Have Thine Own Way because I'm not sure how sincerely I can sing them. I looked up the story this week, and it was written by a woman, a young woman named Adelaide Pollard. Adelaide wanted to be a missionary to Africa. She was sold out to the will of God. But she couldn't raise the funds. She'd prayed, she'd worked hard, couldn't get enough funds to go. And she was really wrestling with this. Does God really love her? Does God really have a plan for her life? And she went to a prayer meeting and an old, older woman prayed before the congregation. And this line from this woman's prayer jumped out at Adelaide. This woman prayed, it doesn't matter what you do with this Lord, just have your own way with our lives. And that inspired Adelaide to go home and write the lyrics. She wrote it before she went to bed that night, the lyrics to this hymn. But let me read them to you. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the plotter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Hold over my being, absolute sway it ends. How, with how much vigor and energy can you pray that before God? Say, hold over my being, absolute sway. You see, that's the attitude of Mary. That's what Mary's expressing when she says, I am the servant, I am the slave of the Lord. Let it be unto me according to your word. That's what true faith looks like. Secondly, the question, we have to ask the question, how do you get faith like that? Yes, it's a gift. But we're not there. How do you get faith like that? Second point is that true faith. Trusts in the word of God. True faith understands that faith comes from the word of God. And it trusts that word. We see the source of her faith in this prayer or song. You know it's sung as the Magnificat. And some people try to say that she actually sang this. We don't know. It's written in verse form. But. She she probably prayed it. We don't know. It doesn't really matter. It's the contents that counts. But when she went to visit her relative Elizabeth, as Gabriel had suggested, not only did she see that, yes, this aged barren woman was pregnant, six months pregnant, but when she called out to Elizabeth, John the Baptist, this unborn child in the womb, yes, a very separate person from his mother, Leapt for joy, the scripture tells us, as a confirmation that God's promises through Gabriel to Mary were true. And so it's in that assurance of faith, having her faith confirmed, that she shouts out this prayer. And what I want you to notice, we're not going to get into the details of the prayer, but what I want you to notice about it is it reflects so beautifully the whole teaching of God's word in the Old Testament. That from the beginning to the end of the Old Testament, she knew God's word. Matter of fact, scholars have broken down this prayer that she offers, this word of praise that she offers. They've broken it down. And basically, there's a lot of Hannah's prayer. Remember Hannah, who also had a miraculous birth when she gave birth to Samuel, the prophet and the priest? That there's a lot of Hannah's prayer in this prayer. So she obviously knew that prayer. But there are phrases from many different psalms and other parts of the Old Testament It's really Old Testament content, and it's a summary, a beautiful summary of what the Old Testament teaches about God's covenant love for his people. She understands that what God is doing through the birth of John the Baptist, through her miraculous pregnancy, was sending the Messiah into the world, that God was revealing himself to be her savior. She addresses him as her savior. That her child would bring about the long-awaited, ultimate mercy that God had promised to those who fear him. And she recognizes that this promised Messiah, as Simeon, again, this prophet would later say, that this Messiah would be appointed for the fall and rising of many, in the words of Simeon. That's the language that, that Mary is using here. He's going to exalt the humble and cast down the pride, prideful that God will bring down and scatter and send away empty those who pridefully oppose him, those who are powerful in this world, those who are rich but oppose God. They will be cast down, scattered, and sent away empty, but the poor in spirit will be exalted. Those who fear the Lord will be shown mercy. Isn't this the same message that we got in the book of James? Chapter 4. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then in verses 54 and 55 of the prayer, Mary sees all this as the fulfillment of God's covenant of grace. Mary, this young, uneducated, peasant woman, knew good, solid covenant theology. She understood that the whole Old Testament was built upon the promises given to Abraham. That when God said to Abraham, I am choosing you and your descendants, your family, to be my people. I will be with you and you will, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will make of you a great nation. And from that nation will come one who will be a blessing to all nations. Mary saw it all the Old Testament revelation that God had given coming to fruition in the miracles that she was participating in. And she's overjoyed. My point here is that she knew the Old Testament. She knew the scriptures. Her parents had been faithful to teach her, day in and day out, the word of God. And because she had real faith, she had a hunger for the word of God. She studied it. True faith hungers for and consumes and lives by the word of God. Do you remember what Jesus said? He was quoting Deuteronomy and when he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. True faith recognizes that. True faith recognizes that God's word is just as essential to your daily life as bread and water or any other food. If you came to me and you brought me a pot with a wilted dying plant in it, and you said to me, I need help, I don't understand why I can't keep this plant healthy and alive. What's wrong? What am I doing wrong? And if I said to you, well, are you giving it water regularly and are you putting it in the sun? And you said, well, no, I would confiscate your plant. You don't deserve to have a plant. You can't be trusted with a plant, obviously. But I can't tell you how often Christians will come and say, I don't understand why my faith is so weak. I don't understand why I just, I can't win my battles against sin. I, I don't understand why I'm not growing like I should be as a Christian. And I say, well, are you spending time in the Word? Are you reading it? Are you studying it? Are you seeking to apply it to your life? Well, no. You see what's missing? Where's the hunger? If faith is real, if you really know God and trust God there needs to be a hunger there to know God and how do you know him but through his word it's the only way he has revealed himself to us yes in creation but all we know from creation is that he's powerful and creative and an artist that's what we know from creation that he's sovereign but you can't know him as savior unless you know him through his word You can't know the Messiah, Jesus Christ, unless you know him through the word. True faith hungers for the word of God. Mary shows us that true faith submits to God's will. Why? Because you trust God. But why did she trust God? It's because she knew God through his word. You read the scriptures, you'll get to know God. You'll get to not only know what God, who God is and what he does, but you'll get to know his heart. And as you know his heart, then you trust him. And then as you trust him, then you can say, Lord, I trust your will, I trust your heart, I will submit to you. You see the connection. That brings me to the last point that Mary shows us by her example. That true faith treasures the work of God in Christ. True faith treasures the work of God in Jesus Christ. That's where I go to what I see in chapter 2. I love the description of Mary's response to the birth of Jesus and the confirmations of the faith that she has in Jesus that are given to her through the angels, through the shepherds, through those around her. Chapter 2, after the birth of Jesus in a stable in Bethlehem, the city of David, a group of shepherds come running to the stable and they tell Joseph and Mary about this angel that appeared to them in the night who told them that this child, this Messiah, the one who was the son of David, the one who would rule and reign and redeem his people had been born. And a multitude of the heavenly host, all the angels had appeared with this angel in this glorious confirmation of the message Mary responds in verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. This is where you dig into the language a little bit and you see some beautiful pictures. The word treasured up there, the reason they translate it that way is literally what it means is she held fast to these things. And it's the idea of holding something very close to your heart. Something, the things, you know, if your house is burning down and you run in to grab the most important thing in your house and you run out clutching it to your chest, it's, it's what you care most about. It's what you most highly value. Hold fast to these things. She treasured up these things, these confirmations of what these testimonies were about who her baby boy was. She held it fast. And then it says she pondered them. And literally in the Greek that means to combine things put things together. She puzzled about it. She, she, you know, you think about all the pieces, you look at a big table full of pieces that don't seem to go together, and all of a sudden she's starting to see how they go, go all together. All of God's plan of redemption, all of God's re- revealed truth, all of God's work in her life, all of God's work in the world in her day, it all starting to fit together, and it's all coming together in Christ. Phil Riken in his commentary says that this word pondered or put things together refers to a person who is puzzled by what they've heard but keeps it in mind in order to understand its meaning. And that's the lifelong pursuit of a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's to see how all of the different pieces fit together in him. Mary knew the word of God. She knew God because she knew his word. She recognized the Messiah, how he fulfilled the promises of God, because she knew God's word. She was able to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And yes, she still had a lot of the puzzle to go at this point. As she held that baby, I'm sure she did not fully understand exactly what he had come to do. Even as she stood at the foot of the cross where the perfect, eternal Son of God, who is both fully God and fully man, was crucified and died and shed his blood as atoning sacrifice, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As she stood at the foot of the cross and watched him bleed and die, she did not fully understand what he was doing and what import it had for her life, for the the people of God, and for all of the history of the universe from that point on. She did not understand, but she trusted God. She had submitted herself to the will of God, and there she was. And she's continually putting the pieces together. She's pondering and treasuring up all of this. And then you know what the last time, do you know when the last time we see Mary in the pages of Scripture? Do you know where it is? Acts chapter 1. She's in the upper room with the disciples of Christ, Worshiping and celebrating that her son and the Son of God, the Messiah who had come to redeem the people of God, the one who had shed his blood so that we can know him and be reconciled to God forever, that this Son of God, yes, he died, but he was raised from the dead. She had seen him raised from the dead. She had seen him ascend to the right hand of God in heaven to take his throne over the universe from that time until eternity. And she's celebrating with the other disciples that Jesus Christ had done what he had come to do. He had fulfilled the promises going all the way back to Abraham. God had been faithful. She put the pieces together. Let me remind you what I said at the beginning. Paul says that we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. By looking at the imperfect example of Mary, we've seen what faith looks like. Real saving faith that's a gift from God. What kind of change it brings about in the heart of a sinner. It causes you to bow in submission and yield your life over to the will of God, to live for his will and not your own will, your own selfish will any longer. And you're able to do that because True faith has a hunger for the word of God which shows us who God is and what He's done for us. And the ultimate result of that is as you treasure up all of this, particularly the gospel, as you treasure the gospel, as your life becomes gospel-centered, as your ministry becomes gospel-centered, as you treasure up the work of God in redeeming us through Jesus Christ, you become radically transformed. That's the life of a disciple. That's what we're called to. That's what faith produces for those who truly have it. Is that what your faith looks like? How much faith do you have as you humbly, honestly assess your life? How much faith can be seen and evidenced in the way you think, the way you speak, the way you live your life? As you ask for your presence this year, let me challenge you to ask for the gift of faith. God is honored by that request. God is pleased to fulfill that request. I'll warn you that it may not come through comfort and ease. It may come through suffering and difficulty. But he will give you faith. And there is nothing in this life more important than more faith in God and in his son, Jesus Christ. Do you really want to celebrate Christmas this year? Then make it intentionally a time of treasuring up and pondering what God has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the example of Mary. Let's pray. Father, our faith is so weak. Every day we're told to measure ourselves by all the wrong standards, and we get caught up in it, and we give in to it. Lord, thank you for this reminder from your word this morning, how you look at us, how you measure us, What's most important? Lord, we thank you for the example of faith in sinners saved by grace, people like Mary. Lord, we still have much growth to do. There's still much that we have to ponder. There's still many pieces that have to come into place. But we trust you. And we submit ourselves to you. We yield ourselves to you in a way in which we've never yielded before. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.